Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, I know that over the summer uh, you've been looking at the Psalms, and I've decided to break that pattern. Uh, we, when Pastor Bert and I planned the series we did, we called it Windows into God's Kingdom, and the focus, of course, is on the Kingdom of God, and I really wanted to bring that sort of focus into a final conclusion. And so today we'll look at the broad scope of that, and then next Sunday I want to focus on a verse out of Luke 24, which I'll highlight uh, in a little while. If you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 1, although that's where we'll start briefly, you'll find that on page 1024 of your pew Bible, it'll also be on the screen. In uh, Luke chapter 1, we get introduced to Luke's purpose. And that's always really important when we look at a scripture passage. We want to look at who the author is and who the original audience is. Because original audiences determine how we read and how we conclude. So if I would write a letter to you that is a love letter, I would have a particular address and a particular approach. If I would write a letter to you that is a business letter, I would have another attitude and another approach. I wouldn't say roses are red and violets are blue and sugar is sweet, but not like you. So you understand the importance of the original author and the original audience. So turn with me to Luke chapter 1 the verses 1 through 4, where Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account to you most excellent Theophilus, so that you may this know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke writes an orderly account to a person by the name of Theophilus, which in its original means friend of God. So this could be an individual person, or it could be a broader address to all people who are friendly towards the idea of God. And Luke wants to write an account that will bring some sense of certainty so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Because certainty lies at the ground of something that is really important. Certainty lies at the heart of that which makes allows you to make a commitment. Think, for example, of the commitment you make, perhaps for the very first time, when you decide to buy a home, a house. Presumably, you are like the vast majority of us, and you cannot pay for that cash on the barrel head. You have to go to a lending agency and arrange for a mortgage. And so you explain the mortgage or the, your need and how much you need to borrow. 
and it is explained back to you by word what the interest rate will be, what the monthly payment will be, what the amortization period will be. So you have a need, there is a word, you might even then listen to the word of a financial advisor who will say, you know what, yes, it's good value that you're buying, and yes, you have enough income, it'll be tight, but with commitment, you can make it work, and yes, you should make a commitment, and then you sign on the bottom line. Having done that, you now have to continue to respond on a monthly basis to that commitment, perhaps the next 25 or 30 years. You want to have some certainty when you do that. And so Luke is talking about making a commitment to Jesus. He's addressing it to Theophilus, maybe an individual, or it may be a collection of individuals who are friendly towards God and interested towards God. And then he writes for what is the next 24 chapters. And then he comes to chapter 24. And in chapter 24, he is going to summarize everything and analyze for us the heart of making a commitment. Now notice, and that's why I entitled, you know, the sermon the first day of the week. Notice it happens on a Sunday. The Sunday that it happens on happens to be Easter Sunday. And that means that the events of the previous two days have been very significant. On Friday, Jesus was crucified, died. On Saturday, he remains in the grave. On Sunday, he arises, and it is the first day of a new week. Now think about the pattern of that in light of Genesis 1 and 2. In the book of Genesis, beginning of the scriptures, the creation story is told. And the creation story ends on the seventh day, which is Saturday. It is a Sabbath day. It is a day of rest. On the Friday, humanity was created. And God said to human beings, I have made you in my image. Go into all the world and have dominion over it. Subdue it. Bring it under your control for the glory of my name. On the Saturday, God rested. What is to happen on the Sunday, first day of the week? Well live out the commitment of the mandate that was given to you on Saturday. Be dominion havers. Be kingdom seekers. With that in mind, read with me the first few verses of Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week, on Sunday, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, 
they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others with him who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. He went away, wondering to himself what had happened. So it's early on the Sunday morning, very early in the day. I doubt these women had slept very much. They had been deeply disappointed by the events of the previous days. Their Lord, the one that they had faithfully followed, the one whose ministry they had supported with her hands-on involvement, was dead. And they were deeply disappointed by his betrayal and by his death. But they also felt they had not honored him well enough by preparing his body properly for burial. It was the cusp of the Sabbath day. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus the Pharisee had taken the body of Jesus, put some spices with it, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb, and a great stone had been rolled in front of it. But that wasn't adequate as far as the women was concerned. So they had taken other spices, and they went to the tomb early in the morning. And if you read in Mark chapter 16, you will read that they wondered to themselves, who will roll away the stone? They had a need, a need to honor Jesus, but they had another need to access his body. Just like some people have a need for a mortgage, and they wonder how that could be arranged. And they get there. And to their great astonishment, the grave is open. And the body of Jesus is absent. And they are bewildered and befuddled. They're just mystified. What is going on here? And then suddenly, these angels, these men in blazing white robes, stood in front of them and supplied a word. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And they are perplexed and befuddled. The grave is open. The body is gone. Why am I looking for the living among the dead? They have a desperate need to understand. Have you ever felt that? A desperate need to understand. Well, what is the kingdom? We have been looking into the reality of kingdom. What is the kingdom? Well, it is the realm of God. It is that sphere in which God reigns, and that's as big as the universe. It is the realm of God wherein people, like you and I, if we are committed to Jesus, 
under the rule of God, acknowledge and promote the reign of God. To, to summarize it in the words of the Lord's Prayer, Father, your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. If you want me to forgive, I will forgive. If you want me to sacrifice, I will sacrifice. If you want me to strive to understand your presence, your revelation, I will strive to understand that. Have you ever heard of the word ubiquity? It's a big word, isn't it? You don't use it in everyday language. Ubiquity means everywhere present. And right now, outside, you have a demonstration of ubiquity. Smoke is everywhere present. It is outside, it's in your nostrils, it's in your car, it's in your home, it's everywhere present. Jesus is ubiquitous. He is everywhere present. He doesn't stink. He doesn't leave ash on your car. But he does live in your life and in your heart. And he does influence your decision-making and your action-taking. He does promote and push forgiveness and reconciliation and sacrifice and Christ-centered living. He does all of that because he is everywhere present with you. And so these angels say to the women, why do you look for the living among the dead? Don't, don't you remember what he told you? And then see that line, and they remembered his words. They remembered his words. It was almost like, oh yeah, I get that now. I understand that now. They remembered his words. And then they have to do something. They have to make a response. They have to make a commitment to do something. And so they go back to the disciples, to the 11 who are in the upper room behind lock and key because they are afraid of the Jews. They go back and they say, well, um, his body's gone. He's not there. The angel said that he is alive and that he's going ahead of you into Galilee and that you should go meet him there. Now, think about that for a moment. That to us doesn't seem so, so challenging and so strange. But in the culture of the day, because of their gender, women were not allowed to be witnesses in a court of law. They were disqualified simply because of their gender. Now, they weren't the only ones. Roll back in your mind to Luke chapter 2. To whom did the angels appear in Luke chapter 2 at the birth of Jesus? To the shepherds. In about four or five months, we'll be singing about that, right? And they said to the, to the shepherds, you know, in Bethlehem a Savior has been born, and he is Christ the Lord. And they decide to go there. 
and they witness this, and then they leave, and they witness to everyone about what they had seen and what they had heard, because the song from the angels had come, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to on men or humanity on whom his favor rests. Glory to God in the highest. But shepherds weren't allowed to be witnesses either. Because shepherds were seen to be vagabonds, untrustworthy by their very occupation. And so these women do what women aren't allowed to do in the culture. They testify, they witness, and what's the response? Their words seemed to them as nonsense. That's just ridiculous. We can't believe you. Hard to make a commitment sometimes when you need to overcome cultural barriers. Then the story unfolds. Morning has passed. The afternoon has come. I'm going to skip references to Peter because that will take us down a whole other rabbit trail. But now on the same day, two men, picking it up at verse 13, that same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleophas, asked him, Are you truly the only one visiting in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and in deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scripture concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. Notice the reference to midday. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with him with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, 
The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And the two told what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So now it's afternoon. These two men, Cleophas and his friend, are on the way to Emmaus, which is seven miles from Jerusalem. If you're a good walker, you can do that in about two hours. You have to go up and down some hills and the paths aren't paved, so it's going to take you some time. And they were engaged in conversation. They were talking with each other. They were trying, I believe, to understand the events of the day because so much had already happened. These women had come. Yeah, it was regarded as nonsense, but they were still talking about it. And they were struggling to understand. And then all of a sudden Jesus shows up. We're not told how that happened. Maybe he joined them from a side path. Maybe he was sitting on a rock taking a rest and thought, well, it'd be nice to have some company. We're not told how it happened. He just showed up. And then the most frustrating phrase in this whole passage to me, and they were kept from recognizing him. And I'm thinking to myself, because my wife and I always get into this conflict. You know, when we garden together, I want product. She wants process. She likes to play in the dirt. I like to put plants in the ground, wash my hands, and be done. Any of you identify with me? I like efficiency. And I look at this thing, and Jesus was kept from recognizing them, and I'm thinking, it would have been so much quicker if he said, Hi, I'm Jesus. Let's sit down and talk on the rock. And it wouldn't have been a two-hour walk back. It would have just been efficient. My wife said, Yeah, but it wouldn't have been any fun. Okay, yeah, fun's important, right? It wouldn't have been any fun. Well, let's talk. Well, what are you discussing? And these two guys stop. What do you mean, what are we discussing? I mean, if the Canucks in this coming hockey season get into the finals of the Stanley Cup and they are leading the finals three games to nothing, I know that seems unimaginable, but, you know, if they're leading three games to nothing, they have dominated every game so far. The, the flags with symbols would be flying on your cars, and the flags would be on poles in, in your yard. It would, be every, it would be ubiquitous. It would be everywhere present. And people would say, have you watched the Canucks? We, we, we'd get really excited. Well, that's the reaction that these two have to Jesus. What are you discussing? What do you mean what we're discussing? There's only one event that counted in Jerusalem in the last few days, and that was the crucifixion and death of Jesus. We had hoped. You see those phrases, that word? We had hoped. Why? Because of who this Jesus was. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. In other words, you know, he could multiply bread and fish and feed 5,000. He, he reached out to Luke's mother-in-law, or Peter's mother-in-law, and touched her, and she was made whole and healed. When we were in a boat and it was about to to, to sink, we woke him up and he spoke to the wind and the waves and he says, peace be still. And it all calmed down. And he was powerful in word and in deed. And we had hoped. We had hoped that he would become the leader of the nation. 
We had hoped that he would mobilize social and economic and political and military resources. And he would have made us what we were at the time of King David. We had hoped, and the implication is, that he would have put the boots to the Romans and gotten them out of there. We had hoped. And now he's dead. Except, you know, women, some women said, yeah, well, he's risen from the dead. And some of our people went there and the tomb was empty just as the women had said it was. I guess we have to believe them. But that's impossible. It's just impossible. And then Jesus gets an edge in his voice. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You have to catch that edge. Right? He, he is really being focused now. And he probably has gained a reaction from Cleophas and his friend. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains the scripture concerning himself. He is Christocentric. He's focused on who he is, why he came, what is he here for. He is not here to put the boots to the Romans. He is here to change the hearts of the Romans. He is not here to restore social and economic dominance and power and privilege. He is here to be the light to the world and the salt to the nations. He is here to be a transforming presence to the glory of God his Father. He is here to promote the kingdom of God, the will of God in the whole realms of God. So they have quite a conversation. I do wish there had been a tape recording of it. It would have been a powerful one to listen to. We can only imagine by our own study of the scriptures what had been highlighted. And then Jesus makes us to go on because, well, the disciples, these two, Cleophas and his friend, have gotten to Emmaus and they are at the house. And he makes to go on and they say, no, 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 no. It's late in the afternoon, early evening. Stay with us for supper. And so he agrees. And then he does something really interesting. He exercises his privilege as Lord. Now just imagine that you invite some people over for coffee and lunch after church. And you get into your house and all of a sudden the man who you've invited over pours the coffee. Goes into your fridge. Takes out your pie, your cake. And when you sit at the table, he pours the soup into the bowl. He takes the bread and distributes it and prays about it. How would you feel? You think, who do you think you are? Taking over in my house. Don't you know your boundaries, your limits? We see his purpose. He wants to get through. He breaks bread, and suddenly the scales fall from their eyes. And then the second most frustrating part of this chapter, poof, 
He's gone. You think, oh, Jesus, you could have stuck around for five minutes. That's all we wanted. We just, what does it feel like to be dead? What's it feel like to be alive? What's it feel like to be frustrated with us? But he's gone. And they looked to each other because they had a need for understanding. They received a word. Now they need to make a response. They needed to commit themselves to something. And what do they do? <clears throat> they go back. Another two-hour walk. They could have been more efficient about that. Another two-hour walk. And then they get back, and, and, and they come to the disciples, and it's all old news. The Lord has appeared to Simon. It must be true. It's validated what the women have told us. So they put all this effort in, and it's old news. But it is still their story. Their story about the encounter of Jesus. And no doubt, they would have things to say. You should have heard Jesus when he talked about Ezekiel. And you should have heard Jesus when he talked about Isaiah 53, as a lamb led before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You should have heard Jesus about this. They respond by being a witness. They are committed to the cause of the kingdom. And now it's evening of the first day of the week, beginning at verse 36. And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled what is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power on high, from on high. And when he had led them out of the to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he, was, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Concentrate for a few moments just on those last verses. It seems as if Luke has collapsed six weeks of time into one day. Because that, those last verses reference the ascension. Now, as you go to Luke chapter, or Acts chapter 1, you will notice how Luke begins that book. He addresses it also to Theophilus, and he says, I have written you in this first book, most excellent Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. 
And we know from the Acts of the Apostles that Jesus was not ascended to heaven on Easter Sunday, although you could Luke, read Luke 24 to come to that conclusion. Jesus ascends 40 days later. The disciples have to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them, which would take 10 more days and happen on Pentecost Sunday. But notice the reaction to Jesus when he shows up in the upper room. He's just there, boom. He's disappeared from the house in Emmaus. He comes there in the upper room, not told how it happens. They're thinking, ooh, we've seen a ghost. He says, no, it's not a ghost. And he takes some food, and he eats it in their presence, and he shows them his hands and his feet and his side. He, he, he identifies, he authenticates himself by eating and by demonstrating. But his words are the words that abide with us. Peace be with you. Don't be frightened. Don't be embarrassed. I am here. I am alive. I am Lord. I am in charge. Be at peace. And they calm down. In the not-too-distant future, when the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon them, they no longer hide behind lock and key in an upper room. No, they go into the temple, and if you read in Acts chapter 3, they come into the temple to worship God, and there is this lame man sitting in the beautiful gate, and they say to him, Silver and gold we do not have, but in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And he does, and they get arrested. It's a nice consequence to witnessing. You see, now they're committed. They have signed on the bottom line. Why? Because Jesus has met their need. He has spoken to them. He says, look at the words of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning myself and understand. Remember I said to you a few months ago, you should quit reading the Bible. And you should start studying it. Looking at it. I, want, I forget who it was, but Somebody at the back door a few months ago said to me, uh, you know, what would you recommend as a study program? And I sort of spontaneously said to him, uh, why don't you pick up the Heidelberg Catechism and study it? And as I was driving home, I thought to myself, that's pretty good advice. Maybe you should take it yourself. So I've begun that. I'm in Lord's Day 6. And... It is a blessing to just simply dig in and take time. And that's the beauty about retirement. You've you got some extra time. You, 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 you dig into the depth of the scriptures. You study these things about God. And then you come face to face with the message of the Great Commission. We all know the Great Commission from Matthew, well, not all, maybe, but most of us know the message of the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them all that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you to the close of the age. Well, what do we teach them? Well, here is the content, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached to the nations, yes, even to your Roman occupiers, even to your enemies, it should be preached. Will you be committed to do so? 
Repentance is a dying away of the old self and a coming to life of the new. It is a change of mind and a change of heart that leads to a change of direction. And we'll, the Lord willing, dig into it in more detail next Sunday. But note what Jesus is asking us to do. He's asking us to be committed to the message. The message of a change of heart and change of mind that leads to a change of direction. The message of forgiveness, of my forgiveness, of my sin against God and against you. A message of forgiveness, of your forgiveness, of your sin against God and against each other and against this world. A message of new beginning and of new hope. A message appropriate to the first day of the week appropriate to the coming and the unfolding of God's kingdom into his vast and wonderful future. A message where we seek justice for aboriginal people, where we seek justice for this world which is presently burning. My wife heard someone on the news this past week that summarized it this way, the Arctic is ablaze. The city of Yellowknife, 20,000 people totally evacuated now, except for a few. What's going to happen in Kelowna? It's going to happen to people who deal with respiratory issues here today. We need to be creation caretakers, not destroyers. Will we be committed? We have a need. We have received a word. This is my Father's world. And we have now to make a commitment. I can't do that for you. I can do that on my own for myself. I leave it with you to make a decision about who you will follow, what you believe, and what you will do. I pray that you will pledge to follow the Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and God, thank you for your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that on the first day of the week, a day of living out our commitment to you, that we may have the opportunity to sit and to reflect, believe, and to act. We pray, Holy Spirit, come and fill us up anew and afresh. Empower us. Help us to grow in faith and love. Help us to grow in obedience. Hear our prayer. Receive our worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.